All right, how you doing this morning? All right, that's good. You, you, look, you look absolutely fantastic. Let me tell you this. Well, I'm Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilton Hills Church. I hope that uh, you are already uh, getting blessed and uh, just sensing the presence of God. We're here to grow and to worship God and those sorts of things. Um, uh, we're going to Lake Phelan and we're going to have a baptism service. We've got a hundred and some people uh, who are going to be uh, being baptized. Very important thing. Yes. Amen. Praise God. It's a good thing. Really want to encourage all of you to come and be a part of this. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. We have worship on the beach and, and things of that sort. So uh, come and just pray for the people as they're getting baptized and, and, and uh, just be a part of this. So it's 2 o'clock, Lake Phelan. There are directions at, of course, same place you find all the information you need, and that is the hub. Otherwise, just read the bulletin and uh, pray about the needs that you find in the bulletin and on the website. We're always looking for more of a prayer covering. Finally, I want to know, um, with, last night we had some people who drove up from Iowa who are pod parishioners and they just wanted to take a little vacation and visit the church. And I'm wondering, are there any other pod parishioners here? Just raise your hand if you're a pod parishioner. Look around, we've got pod parishioners. We love you guys. You're part of us. We bless you. You're part of us. Excellent. We've got the, the, the physical you know, body of Woodland Hills Church, but we also have this virtual body, our pod parishioner church body, and, and we bless them. And uh, we're about 10,000 or so uh, folks every week listening. So, God, we love you, pod parishioners. We bless you. And you're part of... And we're also just praying about what does that mean and what does that look like and what's our relationship with him. And, and so we're looking for guidance on that. Anyways, the uh, message here, what we're going to be doing, we study the book of Luke. We just go through the Bible. No entertainment, no, no, no frills. We just study the Bible. And, uh, uh, and so we've been looking at Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5 for the last two weeks. And we're going to look at it again this week because we're not in a hurry. And it's got important stuff. We'll add on a couple of verses as well. And this, pass- this message is entitled, quite ominously, Repent or Perish. Ooh, ah, shock and awe. Uh, not the most seeker-sensitive message in the world, but we've never been very good at being a seeker-sensitive church anyway. So if you're a seeker, deal with it. All right, this is just... <laughs> There's my sensitivity here. Deal with it. Uh, I, 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 I am just committed to preaching whatever's in the text, and this is in the text, so it's the point is repent or perish. Let's just deal with this. Uh, Luke chapter 13, and we'll read actually nine verses here. It says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Pilate slaughtered some people. And Jesus said, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Do you think God was punishing them? That's what everyone tends to think. But Jesus says, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? It's the old ancient punishment theology. When bad things happen, God's punishing them for something. Jesus says, no, don't go there. But I'll tell you, unless you turn, unless you repent, you too will perish. Then he told him this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went out to look for fruit on it, but it didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found anything. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, 
then cut it down. The point of the passage is repent or perish. Or what is to say, basically the same thing is bear fruit or be cut down. Let's pray here for a moment. Father, prepare our hearts and our minds to receive a very important word for every person in this congregation, every person listening by podcast or some other means, watching television. Open up their ears, open up their hearts to receive your word on an important, life-changing message. And God, cultivate the soil of our heart to make us willing to undergo an extreme makeover if that's what we're supposed to do. Give us courage to make radical changes if radical changes are what is necessary to embark in a new direction in our life. Give us wisdom about this. Bring your kingdom. Help us to stay present in the moment and to be aware of your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. All right. When I was first, uh, first became a Christian in 1974 in this uh, one, wonderful but fairly radical Pentecostal church, uh, we heard a lot about repent or perish. That was kind of the bread and butter. Repent or perish. But it was always sort of done in an angry tone. Repent or perish. That's kind of what you still have today when people are on the, on the street corners you know, with the repentance sign. It's kind of angry. Repent or perish. Sinners. And it was... Um, it really came to mean this, feel bad about your sins or God is going to torture you forever in hell. And that, that, that's what uh, repent or perish meant for us. And it, it kind of confused me, honestly, as a new Christian, because on the one hand, we we're told that God loves you with an everlasting love and he, and he couldn't love you more and you're his child. He loves you like a son or a daughter or you're his bride. He died for you. you could, he couldn't love you more. He's wonderful. But then in the theology of this church that I was in, you're only as saved as your last sinless moment. So that when you sin and, ha and, and haven't repented, now God's wrath burns towards you. But it's not like the disciplining anger of a father who wants to correct you. This is the kind of wrath that will, in our theology anyways, put you in hell for eternity. So the purpose isn't to discipline you or teach you anything. It's sheer retribution. So God could, in a, the drop of a hat or the flicker of one sin, go from perfect love towards you to absolute vindictive eternal wrath towards you. And I never quite got that. What kind of love is that? What kind of parent loves like that? It seems like God has two emotions and only two emotions. There's no one in between. Either he's passionately, passionately in love with you or his wrath is burning towards you and he wants retribution on you for all eternity. Isn't there a little in between? It's like God has two buttons, and you push the love button, you're in. You push the sin button, then, it's, then you push the wrath button, and then you're really in big, big trouble. And I couldn't get, I, I really couldn't make, make, make sense out of that. And what compounded the problem significantly is back in those days, I sinned quite a bit. <laughs> I, see, now I'm so, I'm just perfectly holy, but back then, <laughs> it's hard to believe, back then I sinned. But I, I really, you know, I was coming out of this porn addiction and, and it, that was a tough thing. And so I was like, you know, I'd, I'd be walking, I'd, I'd repent, so God loves me and I'm saved. But then I'd fall and, and if not in actually viewing the stuff, I, in my head it was still going on and that's still sin. And so, I, you know, I, I would sin, then I'd repent, and then I would sin and I'd repent. So God was loving me and, and I'm his child, couldn't love me more, but now he couldn't be more angry at me and wants to have vindictive retribution on me. But now I'm saved again and he loves me, but now he has vindictive retribution. I'm in heaven, I'm in hell, I'm in heaven, I'm in hell, I'm saved, I'm lost, I'm saved, I'm loved. 
apply the blood, revoke the blood, apply the blood, revoke the blood, apply, revoke, apply, revoke, apply, revoke. I was like a yo-yo on God's hand. I think I, I was making God dizzy. Those two buttons, it's going boom, 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 boom. And so it, it was really kind of confusing, but, but it was, it was the, the, either feel bad about what you're doing uh, and turn from it or, or eternal wrath is going to come on you. I, I want to try to give a little different way of thinking about repent or perish. It's a little bit different. Um, can we hear that? It's just, the Bible is kind of like email. You can't, you know, when, you ever have that where you, someone misunderstands your email because they couldn't hear the tone in which you wrote it. It's got the, it happens, doesn't it? That's one of the fallbacks of email. Well, the Bible's kind of like that. In your head, you can hear Jesus going, repent or perish. <laughs> repent or God's going to kill you. The gun's to your head right now. Or you can hear Jesus saying, a teaching not so much about what God is like, but a teaching about what the world is like. And he's saying it not out of anger, but out of deep love and concern. And he's saying, turn because the way, the direction you're going is destruction. It's just the way the world works. The, the direction you're going is destruction. And he does it out of love uh, and out of, out of concern. So I want to explore that way of, of looking at this. To get at it, let me tell you about a conversation I had uh, several years ago with a guy who was uh, coming out of meth addiction. Um, and just let me on the inside of what it was to struggle to try to get free of meth. And those of you who are hearing me right now who have uh, kicked the meth habit, I have nothing but the deepest respect for you because that I have learned is, a, is an incredible, uh, powerful, uh, addictive substance. I mean, it, it gets registered in your brain as a basic necessity. You need meth, your brain tells you the way you need uh, air, and food and water. And so it's an incredibly strong force. It just grips people. And so this guy got into it like it usually happens. It was just going to be kind of a recreational, once in a while sort of a thing. At a party, he decided to smoke a bowl or however you do meth. I don't even know, but I, I think you smoke it. Don't you smoke meth? Uh, you know, you smoke it, right? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> right now, <laughs> no one's going to come up here and say, I'll tell you how you use meth. <laughs> Idiot. No, I, you, you, I, I think see, you, can, you maybe can take it other ways, but you certainly smoke it, right? Because they have those meth labs and stuff. Okay, so anyways, he was into this thing, and he let me on the inside of it. He was going to do it just start recreationally. Uh, but within two or three times, by the third time, it starts to get in, in, and he starts to become a craving. And before you know it, he's completely addicted to it, needs it all the time, has to start selling the stuff to support his own habit. Eventually, that doesn't even work, so he has to start stealing on top of that. This is a kid who was raised in a good home and whatever, but he just got caught by the beast. He drops out of school, can't keep your grades up when you're strung out on meth and you're spending your spare time stealing to support the habit. And his life was just going in a terribly wrong direction. A friend of his... Uh, committed suicide because he couldn't get off this stuff uh, and just despaired. And that was kind of the wake-up call for this guy. So he puts himself into treatment, gets out in a couple months, is clean for a couple weeks and falls back into it. Eventually puts himself back into treatment uh, and for a couple months gets out of it. And this time he was clean for like a half a year, but eventually falls back into it. He was in treatment for a very long time this time and he got out. And when I talked with him, it was his third go at it. 22 years old, he's already had three attempts at trying to get clean. And uh, I, I, I don't know if he was successful in that. I haven't seen him for a while, but I pray, Lord, I just keep working with the guy. But it, it, you see, there's a path there. There's a path of destruction that once you get in on meth, it leads you in a certain way. 
And it's rather quick. Here's a poster that I think a lot of you have seen. A 28-year-old lady who, uh, this is what happens after four years of using meth. You go from 28 to 98. Uh, it just is, is destructive. But it doesn't feel like that at the time. When you're high, you feel great. It's just that it eats away at you. You get addicted, you gotta have it, it feels good, but in fact, it is killing you. The road of meth is a road of destruction. Now, I, I mentioned that, not because I'm gonna have a sermon here on meth, though I will tell you, anyone who's thinking about experimenting with it, you look at that picture very carefully, because that's what you're getting involved in. But my major point is to say that meth, meth addiction, is really sort of a metaphor for all sin. It's a little more obvious, maybe, than most forms of sin, but it's a metaphor for all sin. James says this about sin in general. He says, James, or James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, he says, each of you is tempted when you are dragged, look at that term, dragged away by your own evil desire and enticed. God doesn't tempt you. Uh, your, your evil desire tempts you. It pulls you. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. The temptation is not yet sin. The desire is not yet sin, but when you act on it, uh, that is sin. And then sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. So here's the pattern. You have the conception of desire, which is temptation. Some part of you, it's not your best part, but there's some part of you that wants that, whatever that may be. If you don't say no to that, and you keep on savoring that temptation, I could, I mean, well, that'd be nice if I did. You stay in that long enough and don't say no to it, it will drag you and eventually gives birth to sin. You act on it. And then if you stay in that sin and don't get out of that pattern, well, then eventually it gives birth to the adulthood of death. That's how the thing works. At any point, you can say no and get out of it, but that's, you, you get into this river and it leads to death. It is, in that sense, a natural process. Now, all sin is really unnatural, given that we're made in the image of God, but there is a natural law of cause and effect that applies to sin. Um, it's as natural as the, the process from conception to birth of an infant to growing up a toddler to becoming an adult and dying. If you're conceived and things don't interfere with that process, this is what's going to happen. So it is with sin. Temptation turns to sin, which eventually leads to death. And the Bible frequently speaks about it as this sort of natural process. You step into this river, this is the direction it, 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 it brings you. The wages of sin is death. Uh, this, is the, this is the inevitable fallout if you stay in the direction that you're going. Notice that it's not a matter of God killing you. God isn't the one who's killing you. You are the one that's killing you. By hanging on to this sin in your life, you're heading in a path of destruction. And so Jesus isn't saying that God's going to kill you. He's simply saying that the stream that you're in is carrying you to this toxic lake. The, the path that you're on leads to destruction. It will kill you. Now, then James adds, notice this, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Now, why would he have to add that? Don't be deceived. And the answer, I think, is that, that as many of us can testify, is that when you're on a path of destruction, it usually doesn't feel like a path of destruction. In fact, my experience has been that the path of destruction feels pretty good. In fact, for some, the path of destruction may actually feel like it's giving you life. Uh, this is what is, uh, life really is all about. This guy that I was talking to, when he was on meth, he felt great. He felt, when he was high, 
he, you know, he just felt wonderful. The trouble is he'd come down and then you feel miserable. And the longer he did it, the more miserable he felt when he would come down, the, the more it would, you know, wreak havoc on his physical system. So then he'd get high to escape the misery of, of getting, of coming down from being high, which is really a bad cycle to get involved in. But see, it was deceptive. It feels good when you're in it, but actually it's killing you. All sin is like that. There's a strong deceptive quality to it. There's a lot of people for whom it's only after you lose your wife and kids and it's only after maybe you've lost your reputation and who knows what else, only then does it occur to you that, that porn addiction really is a path that leads to destruction. You always kept on thinking that it wasn't that big of a thing and it's only between you and the screen and it's only blah, blah. But now you realize that in fact it's a path of destruction. For some, it's a you know, guy I knew, he lost his, his, his job, his executive position, CEO in this company, lost all of his, his house, everything he owned because of a gambling addiction. But it was only then that he realized that in fact a gambling addiction is a path of destruction. You know, it doesn't feel like it when you're, when you're in the thrill of winning a couple, but but ultimately, in the long haul, it's a path of, 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 of complete destruction. Uh, for some, it's only after your liver is completely destroyed that you realize that your continual alcohol abuse is a path of destruction. You kept on telling yourself that it's not that big of a deal, that you could quit any time sooner or later. You will quit. But here you are, 52 years old, and your liver is shot. And now you realize it really was a path of, of destruction. All sin is like that. Some sin is more obvious than others, but it's all like that. And ultimately, anything that gets in the way of God being first and foremost in our life is missing the mark. Hamartia, that is what the Bible calls sin. Uh, for us, we live in a culture where one of the major sins is the, one of the, one of the major kinds of meth that we smoke is the meth of the American dream. And we smoke the meth of uh, greed and the meth, the meth of self-centeredness and materialism. And, and while you're smoking that stuff, while you're high on that stuff, while you're pursuing that stuff, while that's first and foremost in your life, it feels, it feels good. It, at least it doesn't feel that wrong, but the Bible tells us that that is a path of, of destruction. Or there's others who get life from their religion and judging others because of the rightness of their beliefs and the rightness of their behavior makes them superior to others, and it gives them life, and they feel good, and they feel righteous, and the protectors of the world. But the Bible describes that very clearly as a path that leads to destruction. But there's a de deceptive a quality there that makes you think that you're getting life when in fact it's killing you. The wages of sin is death. It always leads towards death. Now, it's not that God is up there killing meth users. God's not up there making meth user users age more quickly and eventually die. And God's not up there orchestrating things so that the gambler loses his home. And God's not up there orchestrating things so the guy gets liver disease uh, from drinking too much. God's not up there making sure that every greedy person gets their due. He doesn't need to. The sin itself is doing that. You step in this stream and it takes you there. And God does, in, in a sense, discipline us. He'll use things to try to wake us up to the path that we're going. He'll have us experience some of the effects ahead of time, trying to get our attention, saying, turn, you're heading in a path of destruction. He does that out of love. And of course, God is the one who created the universe, so it works according to his rules. So in that sense, he's behind it but it's not like he's specifically up there needing to connect the dots between the sin and the destruction because the destruction is built into the dots. The destruction is built into the sin itself. Step into the stream, and here is where it is going to take you. And all Jesus is saying in these passages is this. You, right now you guys got death on your mind because Pilate slaughtered some people and a tower fell. He, he uses that as a vocation to say, you know what, why not take inventory of your life? Turn, because the path you're on leads to destruction leads to death. 
You're not walking in the way of life. Let me go a little deeper now and talk about the word repent because there's a lot of misunderstanding around the word repent. The word repent simply is, in Greek, it's metanoia, which means to turn. And I want to talk about two misunderstandings of the word repent to bring out two important truths about the word repent. First, repentance is about turning. It's not about remorse. It's about turning, not remorse. Now listen carefully because this is, this is out there all over the place. Some think, some think that to repent means you're sorrowful, you're crying, you know, there's tears and, and, and the rest. In fact, there's not a subjective emotional component to it necessarily at all. I heard a, radio, a guy on a Christian Talk Radio several years ago, and I want to encourage you all to be very discreet as, and, and critical as you listen to Christian Talk Radio. If you listen to Christian Talk Radio, there's some wonderful stuff on there. There's some really not wonderful stuff on there. So don't believe everything you hear on the radio, please. Please. So this guy on the radio, some talk show guy, and uh, a caller called in and asked some question. I forget what the background was, but uh, the, the uh, radio talk show host says to the guy, let me ask you, sir. You always have, there's always that God sound, that religious sound. Sir, <laughs> did you shed a tear when you surrendered your heart to Jesus, when you repented of your sin? The person says, oh, I was kind of young. I don't think so. I, you know, I, I think it was just sort of I did it because I was supposed to do it. And then this talk show host says, then, sir, I question the genuineness of your salvation. And I started describing unsurpassable worth to him. Unsurpassable worth. Unsurpassable <laughs> And then I had to go out and buy a new radio. It was really uh, unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had to go on and get resaved. Okay, it was a no. <laughs> Save again, lost again, live again, lost again. Now, see, he, he, it doesn't mean that. The word simply means to turn. Why you turn, your motivation for turning, what you're feeling when you turn, that is not, that's not in question at all. It simply means to turn. A person can turn from their meth addiction because of remorse. That's great. They are sorry about how they've ruined their body and screwed up their life and hurt other people. So out of remorse, with tears, they turn. Fine, wonderful. But they may turn without any sense of remorse at all. Maybe their friend just died and that's kind of a wake-up call. Or maybe they saw that post and go, man, I don't want to look like that in four years. So they turn, but there's no remorse. It doesn't matter. Turning is turning. That's what repentance is. Now, there are some people who think that you should never talk about hell. The biblical concept of, it refers to Gehenna, the dump outside of Jerusalem where all things that aren't fit for the purpose for which they were created get, get thrown. It was a metaphor, uh, and it, it's, a, it's a metaphor of destruction, that God brings destruction on those who are, are, end up being not fit for the purposes for which they were created. And some people think you should never talk about hell because if a person turns to God because out of fear of being destroyed, well, that's not right motivation. They ought to turn to God because they, they love God and because they see how beautiful he is. And it's not good to turn to God out of fear. I would just say to that, hogwash. With all due respect, hogwash. Uh, you know, Jesus says in this passage, repent or perish. Some people might all of a sudden start fearing perishing, and that's why they turn. That's all right. You turn because you're afraid, turn because you're afraid. If you, if you turn because you see the beauty of God, turn because you see the beauty of God. Uh, the second one is a little bit you know, better, deeper than the first one, but God will take anything. He'll use any motivation he'll get. The important thing is that you turn. Something in your life says it's time to turn and go in a different direction, and so you do it. 
And so what you felt or the emotions you had or the sorrow that you had, that's not the issue. The important thing is that now you're going to make a change, which leads to my second point. Turning is about reorienting, reorienting your life around the kingdom. It's about a reorientation. And this confronts a very prevalent but, but very unbiblical view of what repentance is. A lot of people think that repentance means praying the sinner's prayer. You say, I'm sorry, forgive me, and uh, that allows you to escape hell. It, it's always attached to what we call the fire insurance view of salvation, which, which holds that the main thing that salvation is is escaping the consequences of your sin, and you get to escape the consequences of your sin, the destruction of hellfire, by saying, I'm sorry. And it doesn't matter whether your life actually changes or not as long as you prayed the sinner's prayer. And I submit to you folks that that is as insane as it is unbiblical. Honestly, I'm, I'm just shooting straight here. That is an insane and un... That, that is like... It, it's like... It's like if I was addicted to, to, to meth and I'm smoking meth, and, but somehow I come to believe that if I, if I say I'm sorry for smoking meth... Uh, then somehow I won't age prematurely and I won't die uh, because I said I'm sorry for it, even though I keep on doing it. I'm smoking meth. Boy, I'm really sorry for doing this. I'm really sorry for doing this. And somehow that's going to keep me young and keep me from dying. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. Read the memo. Uh, the, uh, if you don't stop, actually stop smoking meth, you're going to age prematurely and you're going to die. Repentance is not when you say you're sorry. Repentance is when you turn. And you can't turn theoretically or hypothetically or out of a wish. You turn when you actually turn. If you want to escape the consequences of smoking meth, you've got to turn from smoking meth. Not rocket science. But it's amazing how theology sometimes gets so screwed up on the most fundamental points. This magical view of repentance is always associated with this magical view of salvation, this false view of salvation. A lot of people think, especially here in America, that salvation is primarily about escaping the consequences of your sin. That salvation is primarily about avoiding hell. That's what Jesus came to do, is to get us out of hell. As though God's perfect plan for your life was so you would not go to hell. Uh, it, it, it's a little better than that, I think. It's okay to turn to God because you're afraid of uh, perishing. That, that, that's okay. God will take that motivation. But, but not perishing isn't God's perfect plan for your life. It's a little better than that. Uh, to think that way is sort of like a parent whose major aspirations for their young child, as they're raising this child, their major aspiration is to keep this kid out of prison. Uh, could you raise the bar a little bit? There's something sick about that. When my child grows up, he's not going to go to prison. Well, that <laughs> You know, see, a healthy parent, a healthy parent wants a child who grows up who develops a good moral character and develops a capacity to love and to invest in others and find significance in their life and joy in their life and, and, and purpose in their life. And if they're Christian parents, they want that child to get all that from Jesus Christ. And see, if a child does that and develops a good moral character and is a fully alive human being, they're not going to go to prison because they're not they're out there committing crimes. But you don't raise them for that purpose. You don't say, I'm going to want you to develop a good moral character so that you'll stay out of prison. No, a good moral character is the end in and of itself. The corollary to it, the fallout of it, is that you don't go to prison. But see, if you reverse things and you raise a child with the purpose of staying out of prison, well, it's very unlikely they're going to grow to be a fully alive uh, person with a good moral character and knows how to love and, and all the rest of that. 
If you raise a kid thinking that the goal of life is to stay out of prison, well, what you'll get is a person who's a professional prisoner escaper. They'll know the eight things you can't do to, you know, avoid those things to stay out of prison. They may want to do them, but, but uh, you know, they know what things to avoid uh, to not go to prison. Or if they have the kind of criminal character that wants to do those things anyways, they'll just become experts on how to cheat the system and stay out of prison. I mean, at best, you raise a kid with that mindset and they're going to be perpetually immature. At best. They may end up being just a person with a criminal character who's an expert at cheating the system. That's not what you want. I believe that many Christians get locked in a state of perpetual immaturity because they think that God is raising them to escape prison. God is raising us. The whole point of everything is to escape hell. And so they live in that, that infantile mindset. How, what, what do I need to do to keep from being thrown into prison. God does warn us that the path we're going down leads to destruction, but the purpose is not just to get us to avoid destruction. The purpose is to get us off the path. God isn't interested in us escaping the consequences of our sin. He's interested in getting us out of the path of sin that leads to those consequences. God isn't interested in just getting us to avoid being uh, destroyed because of the way we're going. He wants us to learn to walk a different way, to have a different orientation in our life. He wants us to learn how to participate in the fullness of life that he came to bring us, the abundant life that he came to bring us. He wants us to be fully alive in Christ Jesus. He wants the people who know how to dance with him and learn how to live out of a center of celebration, who, who, have, who are developing the character of Jesus Christ. He wants the people who are learning how to be fearless because there's nothing that we fear because there's nothing that life can take from us uh, that, that really is important important. We get our life from Jesus Christ, and therefore we don't get our life from anything around us, including our own physical life. People who are bold and who are fearless, who don't care what others maybe think about them, who don't care about the judgments of the world, who are no longer the the gerbils on the the rat race of the American dream trying to get the piece of cheese, but know what life really is about, learning in love, walking in love, participating in the kingdom. And if you get people who are moving down that trajectory, that path, who've jumped into that stream, well, you know what? They're not going to be thrown into prison, but they don't worry about that because they're not out there committing crimes. Uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes Christians like to fight about eternal security. It's one of the all-time classic fights. Uh, they, we, we like to debate these things. Um, and that's just the issue of, of, you know, can you lose your salvation? And under what conditions can you lose your salvation? Uh, and so they go back and forth. And one group gets the, the, all the verses where you know, the Bible warns about falling away. See, look, you can fall away. The other group gets all the passages where God says, I'll keep you secure. See, God's going to keep you secure. And then you know, they, they throw them at each other. Here, take this verse. Oh, yeah, well, I got this verse. Oh, yeah, we'll take the three verses. Oh, yeah, and it's like a snowball fight with verses. Yeah, what about this? And they quote verses at each other. <sighs> Have you ever been to these debates? I'm serious. Well, yeah, well, what about 1 Timothy 4? I never read that verse before. And everyone's got another interpretation for the, for the verses they get thrown out. Look, at, I, I honestly, with all due respect, I know it's important to a lot of people, but it, from where I am, the place I've come to, I regard that as being, frankly, a rather infantile debate. Now, here's why. I'm not saying that you're an infant for debating it. You're just going out of the theology you were given, but, but, it, but it, it, it's not a helpful debate. Here's why. The whole debate presupposes that salvation, rather than being a real-life relationship thing, salvation is a sort of legal loophole thing that that keeps you out of prison. And you get that legal loophole because uh, of a prayer you prayed. And now the only question is, can you lose that legal loophole? Can Can you lose it? And under what conditions can you lose that? And so they go back and forth on that. The thing is this. 
The only people I know in life who worry about whether or not they're going to be thrown into prison are people who are committing crimes. Criminals. And the only people who are worried about premature aging and death because of meth are the people who are smoking meth. So if you don't smoke meth and you're not committing crimes, you're not going to spend a whole lot of time debating whether or not there's a way that you can get out of prison. You see what I'm saying? Uh, it, it, it live fully alive, be in the kingdom, walk the kingdom, be heading in that direction. Of course, none of us do it perfectly. We fall, we screw up. We got, yeah, we all got that. It's a process. It's a process. But you're, there's some fruit being born in your life. You're heading in a certain direction. Uh, you're learning how to walk in love and, and develop the character of Christ and the joy of, 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 of sacrificial giving. And if you're walking in that walk and being fully alive, the last thing you're going to be worried about are what are the technicalities that can cause you to lose your salvation. In fact, worrying about that, and see, worrying about that, being obsessed with that is a sign that something is wrong. Uh, and I, you're, it's like the kid who's raised to think that the goal of life is to stay out of prison. That, that very worry, I submit to you, may be keeping you in a state of perpetual immaturity. And so I encourage you just to forget about that question. That's the wrong question. The right question is, how can I walk better in the way of life? the way of Jesus Christ. It might help to think about repentance as reorientating uh, reorient your life, as reorientation. In fact, I wonder if we should maybe, maybe the word repentance has got so much baggage on it, we should just jettison the word and now just talk about re re reorientating your life. Reorientate your life. Or re reorient your life. Reorient your life. Is it reorientate, reorient? Reorient. Reorient your life. Reorient your life. Yes. And... Uh, <laughs> Okay, maybe we shouldn't replace the word. It's hard to pronounce. <laughs> Repentance is easier. Reorient your life and you shall be saved. Because repentance is about a whole reorientation. <laughs> right? It's reorientation, reorient, reorientation. Reorient, reorientation. The English language is so hard. It's like this. If you... You realize you're going down a path of destruction. You wake up to that and you turn. And that turning involves reorientating your life uh, in the way of Jesus Christ. You're, you're, you're a person, if a person's going to get off a of meth, they may make the decision because of remorse. They may make the decision for some other reason. But the desire to not have the consequences of meth, the desire to get off of it, isn't itself turning. The turning happens when they reorient their life in a different direction. They structure their life in a different direction. Instead of now being structured or orientated towards a, 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 a meth addiction, they want to orient their life in a meth-free way. They need to structure their life so that now they can avoid temptation. They need to restructure their life, uh, get a different bearing in their life so they learn how to have different kind of fun. You've got to relearn how to have fun when you get off of meth. You've got to learn how to spend your time differently if you're going to get off of meth. You've got to learn how to stay away from certain places and stay away from certain people if you're going to get off of meth. You've got to totally restructure your life. You've got to orient your life in a different direction. You need to have other people around you if you're going to get off of meth. Anyone who has come out of substance abuse knows this. You can't do it alone. You need people around you who can hold you accountable, who can encourage you, who can keep you uh, in line. And you need to do a, a personal inventory in your life to ask the question, what was it that made me vulnerable to this meth addiction in the first place? Because if you don't take care of those inner issues... You're going to remain vulnerable. And it's a process. This reorientating your life is a process. Uh, as anyone coming who's in recovery knows, the fact that you made a decision five years ago to restructure your life doesn't count for squat. The question is, are you doing it today? You've got to take it one day at a time. 
That's what repentance is. And meth is like every sin. It pulls us in a direction of destruction. If, if we wake up to the reality of that destruction, we need to turn. But the turning is not just a theoretical prayer saying I'm sorry or something of the sort. It means actually seriously looking at your life to overhaul all the things that kept that path of destruction in place. Saying we want to avoid the consequences isn't repentance. Repentance is actually walking in a different way. So for example, Jesus calls us to turn from the destructive path. It is destructive. The destructive path of greed and consumerism and self-centeredness and materialism. And he calls us to walk in the beauty uh, of the kingdom way, the kingdom way of simplicity, the life-giving way of selfless generosity towards the poor and, and, and investing in the kingdom. But see, we need to understand that greed and materialism and consumerism, that is the meth that we all smoke in America. And the fact that we don't see it as that bad just shows you how addicted we are to it. It's so natural to us. And so if we're ever going to turn, genuinely turn from this and begin to live kingdom, kingdom values, this is just one example of the kind of things we need to turn from. If we're ever going to do that, it's going to require a complete reorientation of our life, a restructuring of our life. We have to set our bearings in a different direction. I'm surrounded by meth all day long. And I'm trying to kick the habit. And I'm not referring to literal meth. I'm referring to the meth of greed, consumerism, materialism, self-centeredness. And I could list a hundred other things that are part of our culture. So the question I need to live in is this. How can I reorient my life to move away from greed and away from consumerism and towards simplicity and learning how to be content with little and, and the non-possessive lifestyle of the kingdom? How can I, I need to ask myself, if I'm really going to walk in a different way, how can I free more time and more money to invest in the poor and to further the kingdom? I need to honestly ask myself, honestly do an inventory and ask, uh, what, are the meth, what, what are the meth addictive signs in my life? What areas of my life reflect more American consumer values than they do kingdom values? I need to honestly look at whether or not I'm walking in a destructive path of idolatry, of wealth and possessions. And I need to seriously ask the question, who can I invite in on my life or who is already in my life that I can invite to do this with me so I don't do it alone? Who can walk with me side by side? Who can be part of this, this journey with me so that we can together help each other kick the American meth addiction to the American dream? Uh, repentance then is about Reorient, turning and reorientating our life in a kingdom way rather than a destructive way. It's about one more thing. I'll just say this very quickly. Because you're walking now in the way of life, it's about reversing as much as possible the effects of the destructive way of living. You're going down a way of destruction and there's a lot of damage there. To turn from that is to make restitution as much as possible. Because now you're walking in the way of life. And so there may be people you need to go back and ask forgiveness from. There may be people that you need to forgive. There may be things that you stole that you're still enjoying and you need to go and return those things. Now, it's not always possible and in some cases it's not wise to try to make amends for things that were done in the past. You've got to pray about this. But repentance involved, read Zacchaeus' story in, in, in Luke to, to, to see this illustrated. It's about making, making restitution for wrongs that were done. It's a genuine turning, not hypothetical, not theoretical. It's a genuine turning to walk in the way of life. Folks who are being baptized this afternoon, they are really just declaring this, what we just talked about today. 
they are declaring as they go down into the water that they are identifying with the death of Jesus Christ, which means their old self now is dead. The self that was meth addicted is, is, is dead. They're dying to the meth addiction of the world and, the, and getting life from idols and all of that. And now when they come up out of the water, they're identifying with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're saying, I, wanna, I pledge my life to walk in a kingdom way, the ways of the kingdom, the ways of Jesus, and to let the, the character of Christ be formed in me. And uh, the, the, the act of baptism doesn't magically do that for them, but it does declare publicly that this is the decision that they have made. And I encourage all of you to be a part of it. All of us need to ask this question then. And I, I want to end by having the Holy Spirit seal on our hearts what we need to take away from this. So if, you, if it helps you to concentrate by closing your eyes, close your eyes. If not, don't. Because there's no formula about how to pray. But we want to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, right now, Tell us what areas of our life reflect an addiction to the meth, the meth of our culture, the meth of the world. What areas, God, are, are, are not supposed to be there? Show us, Lord, what needs to change. Maybe we don't know how it could possibly change. Maybe it's an extreme makeover, and we don't have to settle out all the issues of how right now, but Lord, we're asking you to show us what those are and to commit to turning from the way we are now to move in a different direction. And Holy Spirit, just reveal to us. Some here might right now be getting a message of extreme makeover, and it scares you to death. I want you to just be okay with that. You don't need to know how you're going to do it. But just commit to the Lord that you are going to begin to turn in that direction. Whatever it is the Lord reveals, it could be relationships, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the possessions that you have, the relationships that you cultivate, the habits that you have. Whatever is there that does not minister life, but rather ministers destruction. It's not good. It's not kingdom. It's not whole. We just commit to turning from that. And then ask the, yourself the question, who can I invite in on my life to help me walk this out? Because you cannot do it alone. And I want to ask any, any who are here who are going to be baptized in, the next, in an hour and a half from now, I want to give a special prayer for you. Would you stand if you're here and you're going to be baptized? Stand up. I want to close with this prayer. Lord, I thank you for all of these people here. They are pledging that they're going to turn. They can't do it on their own power. They know that. They can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, help them to yield to your Spirit. And now, Lord God, as, as they are obeying you in the waters of baptism, I pray, Lord God, that the death and resurrection of their old self and the death and resurrection of Jesus would be so real to them. Lord God, that there, you, you would use this as you often did in the book of Acts, to pour out your spirit in a new way, uh, to fill them with your spirit, to empower them to walk in a kingdom way that is taking the radicality of their uh, walk up two notches, Lord, and just use this as a way of testifying to others about the truth of Jesus Christ. Bless them and surround them in your spirit in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. You guys, amen. You were baptized. I, I want you to, right now, you get to go out and be first in line because uh, you need to get over to that lake. So you guys go out. Let, let them go first. Head out. Head out. And I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And I want to say that if you have, are here and you have any need whatsoever that you would like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you've never surrendered to him, I encourage you to come forward and talk to these folks about it. Otherwise, I will see you at 2 o'clock down at Lake Phelan. God bless you guys. Turn and walk in the ways of life and build a kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen.